0: Walk down the winding path, don't mind the spooks and monsters, they stay hidden within the trees. There are mysteries in this world that you need to know, and paranormal truths that need to be told. Come, step up into the caravan, where we share tales of old as well as new accounts about things you thought only existed in your nightmares. Imagine being a child. You're meandering through your school's library, unsure of exactly what it is you are looking for. The rain is pouring, cascading down a singular window. Gray light dimly illuminating a quiet and forgotten aisle. Running your fingers along the bindings that stand before you. A name catches your eye pages filled with unread tales of demons monsters and ghosts your eyes fall upon its pages hooked by its first few words you clutch it tightly and check it out these are the tales that opened my eyes that filled my heart with wonder the stories that would urge me to search for more the stories that lent a hand in the path to creating the caravan The Goatman, two young teenagers who drove down Lover's Lane. Upon parking the car, a figure can be seen in the distance, in the shadows, unable to make out what it is. As large rocks began to pelt the car, the figure charged forward, coming into view. Half man, half goat. The creature was coming straight for them. They started the car as fast as they could and drove off. Leaving this legend behind. The following is yet another version of the Goatman tale. To his right, looking fine in black Levi's and a white cotton sweater, sat Lisa Jane Benedict. Maybe not the prettiest girl at Eleanor Roosevelt High in Prince George's County, but surely, if the buzz was true, the most sophisticated. I don't like this at all, Lisa said as Hank steered his father's Buick into the darkness of Fletchertown Road. I mean, not that I believe any of that stupid stuff, but, well, what if he's really out there? Who? Your pop? Hank said, reaching over to pat the girl's knee. Hell, he's passed out and is lazy boy right now. You know I'm not talking about my father, Lisa said, crossing her arms. For as long as he'd been hearing about PG County's infamous urban legend. Was third grade recess the first time? The monster's name had never failed to give Hank the big time creeps, so he was more than thankful when Lisa refrained from uttering that awful name. As Hank steered the car along Bowie's winding, leaf-littered roads, he thought the town seemed strangely empty for a Friday night. His pals were at Leto's chowing down and talking, but where was everyone else? He tried to keep himself in steady spirits. But when he turned the car onto Zug Road and the headlights brushed the white crosses marking anonymous graves in the church cemetery, Zug Road, Lisa whispered, "That's where that dog was mutilated. That's where that monster was first spotted, right?" When Hank felt Lisa's side closer to him, he knew. He became positive that he made the right decision. Probably just some dirty wino anyway. Hank kept driving. ...planning to stop at the chain-link fence guarding the train tracks. Let a little fear do its work, he thought. But tonight, for some reason, the fence's gate was wide open. No way, Hank. If the goat man doesn't get us, then some train will. But despite the fact Lisa had finally blurted the beast's filthy name... ...Hank still wasn't listening. Let's just drive out here for a second. Fueled by adrenaline and fear... ...he stared his father's car through the gaping mouth took a tight turn and parked 30 feet down under a dying tree. Now, is this so scary, he asked, reaching into the back seat for a beer. Lisa, distracted by looking north, south, east, west, for the monster, mumbled no. When Hank hit the headlights, however, Lisa had had enough. Please leave him on, Hank, she pleaded. We won't be out here long enough for the battery to go dead. He looked at her and nodded his head. But just as he leaned toward her, his lips barely touching hers, Lisa jerked violently and shouted, "'Someone's out there!' "'Come on, Lisa,' Hank sighed. It was a freaking ghost story. Like the legend of Sleepy Hollow, Hank turned toward the windshield. "'And you don't believe in the headless horse.' But then he saw it, too. Well, he saw something. Something like lakes, but not really. Something human, but not really. A costume?' It had to be a costume. In fact, Hank was almost positive he could make out the crude ape drape hairstyle of a certain nosy friend. Is that O'Sullivan, Hank said, straining his eyes. Hell, he's just trying to scare us, that's all. Lisa pointed a finger in Hank's face. You are going out there and telling O'Sullivan or whoever to beat it right now. Hank looked at Lisa, weighing getting the shit scared out of him against rounding the bases with the most sophisticated girl at Eleanor Roosevelt. He opened the door, the hinges making a terrible screech, and turned back to Lisa. At least have a beer while I'm gone, please? As Hank ambled toward the shadows, the girl locked all the doors. She turned up the radio and tried to sing along. Was it Star Star by the Stones? And that's when she started hearing things. The crack of a tree branch shut her silent, then a howl stole her breath, and then finally, the tapping convinced her to stay put. Tap, tap. Like a drop of rain beating against a tin can. Tap, tap, tap. As the seconds turned into minutes and her curfew came and went, and the tap, tap, tap kept its sickening rhythm, a tarried-eyed Lisa Lisa was visited by all those tales she'd been hearing since she was young. And then Lisa thinks back on that night, and she figures it must have been the metronome tick of the tap-tapping. She fell asleep, only to be jarred awake at dawn by a train roaring a few yards away. She let loose a shriek that ripped through the haze of slumber and slammed her body into the upright position. And when the buzz of the locomotive finally faded to quiet, the beat went on. Tap. 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 Slightly comforted by the daylight, and a coal train crawling in from the west, she opened the door and watched as the first drop of blood spread across the sleeve of her white sweater. Then another, and another. She could smell the blood beginning its slow bake in the sunlight, and she swallowed hard to keep everything down. But the stench was nothing compared to what came next. Her scream, throaty, raw, endless, was lost in the whistle of the locomotive as Liz Jane Benedict looked up into the canopy of branches and realized what that tap tap was all about. In the autumn of 1971 Washington Post reporter Ivan Goldman ventured out to Bowie Maryland to investigate a grizzly murder. On the frosted morning of November 4th two 20-year-old kids William Jean and John Hayden had gone searching for ginger A German Shepherd puppy belonging to April Edwards, the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Lacey Daniels, with whom Jean was currently residing. The puppy had escaped from its Zug Road pen the night before and was probably wandering around the neighborhood looking for trouble. But the boys, who would later report seeing a strange figure and hearing a high-pitched squeal the night before, didn't have to look far to find the dog, or at least what remained of the juvenile canine. As Jean and Hayden casually walked into the backyard in the direction of the Penn Central Railroad train tracks, they spotted something in the grass. Furry, fanged, a rabid gopher? A crazy squirrel? No. Jean and Hayden found the cleanly severed head of the family dog. And even worse was what the two young men didn't find that morning: the rest of the family dog's corpse. The nervous whispers that sprouted from the violent end and missing remains of Ginger would soon grow into the loud and proud reports of the area's most notorious anti-hero, Goatman. A monster of many masks, half-man, half-goat, mad scientist, unhealthy hermit, but of universal, seemingly everlasting, spooking power. In fact, the myth's essential starting point, the sad demise of Ginger, a true tale this time, 27 years later. And as Mark Opsenik, the nation's foremost goat recaps the dog last days while driving toward his old Bowie haunts on, a spectacular summer day, the story still manages to tingle. To stay up to date on the latest episodes and sneak peeks, check out my Facebook, The Caravan of Lore. We even have a Patreon, where you can sign up to get your name on the Show Notes Hall of Fame, as well as monthly intuitive readings. An old Scandinavian myth of the Black Hound of Odin has many different tales. It is said to be a spectral or demonic entity from the folklore of the British Isles essentially a nocturnal apparition, even a shapeshifter. Its appearance has been regarded as a harbinger of death, and in a rare occasion, companionable. Known also as the Black Shuck, it is said to roam from the coastline and countryside of East Anglia. The name Shuck meaning devil or fiend. One of the most famous accounts of its appearance is in the writing called A Strange and Terrible Wonder, published in 1577, with the earliest surviving description being in 1127. Said to be between the size of a calf or a horse, pure black and in some descriptions a cyclops, lore goes that if you see him, your death will come before the end of the year. This story is said to be true although it is related differently by everyone. However, I will take the one that belongs to our family, or at any rate, the one that my father told me, and set before you the story as simply as possible. There is a church in the city of Kilkinny, which once belonged to the Catholics, but during one of the strifes of which Irish history is made up, the Protestants captured it and hold it ever since. There is a graveyard attached to it, which is the resting place of ancient Catholics as well as Protestants. It is said that each night at the midnight hour, a black dog as big as a donkey used to gallop through Michael St. Wolf Town Street, the Dublin Road, and down Maudlin Street. Any person who is unlucky enough to meet this monster will never have an easy mind as long as he or she lives. He spits fire in two long flames from his mouth, and does the most frightful... dances. His two large fiery eyes fixed on them. Then he will stand on his hind legs and tumble somersaults until they have the courage to pass him by. On one occasion, an old piper named Coach O'Leary was on his way to play his bagpipes at a dance. When he saw this horrible creature, Coach, who was a man of great courage, had often heard of this ghost. He immediately shouldered his pipes, filled his bag, blew his drones, and blew loudly so as to imitate the cry of a donkey. The ghost's eyes grew more fiery and as large as potlids, but old Coach was not frightened. Suddenly, the ghost made a leap past Coach and ran for the churchyard faster than the devil ran through Athlone. Coach continued on his way to the dance, playing The Wind That Shakes the Barley, which was Coach's favorite tune. The ghost was never seen or heard of since the night it encountered old Coach O'Leary, the Pied Player. If you have had an encounter, experience, or sighting that you would like to share, please email me at thecaravanoflore at gmail.com. I would love to have you on the show, or even read your stories. And perhaps one of my favorite stories to share, a tale of haunted train tracks, Mako Lights. For over a century, mysterious lights were seen bobbing up and down along the railroad tracks near Mako Station, a few miles west of Wilmington. When anyone approached the lights, they would disappear. The lights were observed many times over many years, and even photographed on occasion. It's even said that the president, Grover Cleveland, saw the lights while on a whistle stop tour in 1889. The source of these lights has never been determined, but according to legend, the light is the ghost of a railroad worker who died on the tracks one night in 1867. On that tragic night in 1867, a train was rolling along the tracks and the signal man, Joe Baldwin, was sleeping on the caboose. Joe's slumber was broken by a violent jerk. A veteran railroad worker, Joe Baldwin recognized the motion and immediately knew that the caboose had become detached from the rest of the train. Joe Baldwin's heart started racing. He knew that his one car was now stuck on the tracks and that the main part of the train was rapidly moving away from him and he had no way of contacting it. Joe also knew that this wasn't the only train scheduled for those tracks that night. A passenger train was due along soon. And if the oncoming train struck the stalled caboose, there would be a horrible accident. Joe Baldwin had a choice to make. He knew that he had to signal the oncoming train to stop. He knew that the only way to do this, and be sure the engineer in the approaching train would see the signal, was to stand on the platform at the back of the caboose. Joe Baldwin knew that if the oncoming train hit the stalled caboose at full speed, everyone on board the passenger train could die. He also knew that it takes a long time to stop a speeding train even if the engineer saw the light and stopped. There wouldn't be time enough to slow down and prevent a complete disaster. The chances were good that the caboose was still about to be hit, and if he was on that caboose when that happened, Baldwin knew he didn't stand much of a chance of walking away from that crash. He could either save his own life, or try desperately to save the lives of those passengers. Baldwin made the heroic choice, grabbing his lantern, Joe Baldwin stood on the back of the caboose as the sound of an oncoming passenger train rumbled closer. Joe frantically waved his warning light, trying to catch the attention of the engineer. Joe's plan worked. The engineer of the oncoming train saw the light and pulled hard on his brakes, but the momentum of the tons of speeding steel kept the train moving, and the locomotive slammed into Joe's caboose. Joe's bravery saved many lives, but not his own. Joe Baldwin was decapitated in the crash. Joe's head was thrown by the force of the accident into the murky swamps that surrounded the tracks. It was never found. His headless body was buried with hero's honors a week later. For years after that accident, lights were seen moving up and down the tracks around Mako. Sometimes only one light. Sometimes two. People said that it was the ghost of Joe Baldwin, still searching for his missing head. The Mako light was seen for over one hundred years, but has not been seen since 1977. This was the year that the railroad tracks at Mako Station were pulled up. Many explanations have been offered for the mysterious lights, including one intriguing geological possibility. Mako stands on top of a geological fault line. Some have speculated that the source of the lights was static electricity produced by the pressures of this fault building up along the tracks and discharging as light when the tracks reach their capacity. This would explain why the lights haven't been seen since the tracks were pulled up. What is it that brought you here to the caravan? What turned you on to the things that go bump in the night? What tales filled you with fear What stories stayed in your blood, whispering to you to seek more, to keep searching through the dark for the things that shouldn't exist.
1: Leaves go up in flames of red, in flames of red. Worry ties me to the ground, feathers fall without a sound, without a sound. Burn on, dear flame, burn on There's a light in the fire Burn on, dear flame, burn on The black hawk calls to your deepest desire Dead, old, rotten idea You grow heavy, then you fall So heavy, then you fall to the ground They turn red and then they fall So red and then they fall to the ground Black heart calls to your deepest desire. Burn on, dear flame, burn on. There's a light in the fire. Burn on, dear flame, burn on. The Black Hawk calls to your deepest desire. Burn on, dear flame, burn on. There's a light